Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our Warning Premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. Very pleased to be joined by Victor Shea. Uh, Victor, for those of you who don't know, was the youngest Biden delegate to the 2020 Democratic National Convention, not yet 18 years old. His first election was the 2020 election. And I think as we talk this afternoon, we'll get a perspective from Victor. How do young Americans see the world? How does the rising generation see this moment in American politics? What's going on on campus? Is there hope? Is there optimism? Is there pessimism? Is there cynicism? So let's get at it with Victor Shi. Victor, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. But so you, we find you where this afternoon? Currently at UCLA um, in one of the classrooms here. And you are a junior at UCLA studying? American literature and culture. And how, how did you find your way to American literature and culture? So I started off as a poli-sci major. The poli-sci classes were a little bit too theoretical and large for my liking. So um, I always liked English. I always liked reading. And so I switched to American literature and culture um, after my second quarter here. Talk to me about politics. When did you get interested in it? What drew you to it? And tell us about where you are right now heading into this next election. Yeah, so I would say my path to politics is similar to maybe a lot of people who kind of find themselves in this space, which is that it's something small that kind of spurred the the interest. And for me, it was I was in eighth grade, 2020, I'm sorry, the 2016 Iowa caucuses were uh, right then. And my eighth grade social media teacher basically told the entire class that um, as young people, you can make a difference. She started talking about the political spectrum and where all the candidates align themselves. And I was just fascinated by that process. And so I got involved then, um, joined a bunch of political campaigns from there, in turn on a couple campaigns. And then uh, now 2024, um, my biggest goal is hopefully to mobilize Gen Zers and get young people out there and energized and ready to go. What what attracted you to the Democratic Party? Was it ever a question? Are your parents involved in politics? Were they like, what are you doing? What? It's interesting you say that, actually, because both of my parents um, are Republicans, or I guess traditional Republicans. So um, I'm originally from Chicago, and so they both moved from China. They um, affiliate themselves with the traditional Republican Party, if that even exists now. But they voted for Trump in 2016 and in 2020, though, for Biden. But for me, part of the large reason why I joined the Democratic Party or why I felt like the Democratic Party more aligned with my values was because at the time it was the difference between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and I think for a lot of young people, especially at that time, seeing someone like Donald Trump so openly um, push around vitriol and racism and sexism was something that I knew I couldn't really support. And so um, I found myself aligning myself more with people like Hillary Clinton, who were more kind of center left and um, I thought were pragmatic for kind of where we were. And then ever since, just kind of seeing the divide between Republicans and Democrats have, has kind of pushed me further to the left. If both of your parents were born in China, immigrated to the United States. Yes. And so you're a you're a first generation American, um, first generation to go to an American university in your in your family. And you have become a fairly well-known political activist. What do your parents say about that? Does it surprise them? 
I, th I think, um, you know, when I, when I first got involved, they were a little bit hesitant. They said, are you sure you want to do this? Because I think a lot of Asian parents kind of value stability, traditional um, career paths. So to be in a space, as you know, is very unpredictable, very uncertain in terms of what's going to happen next. So I think even though they know, you know, what's happened since 2016 has been relatively, I mean, even for me, real, and I would never have predicted this. I think they still have them in the back of their minds. They think that, you know, they should, they definitely want me to know what I'm getting myself into. But um, I would say they're probably a little bit concerned about what's next, but um, I think they've kind of realized that the, the, the horse is out of the barn per se. We celebrated an anniversary in this country this week, which was the 78th anniversary of the ending of World War II on May 8th yeah. in Europe, Victory in Europe Day. Uh, the crumbling of Hitler's thousand year Reich to its final dust as they unconditionally as they unconditionally surrender um the the world that we're living in um was shaped by the leaders of that war uh, who architected the global system which endures through this day now those people that are famously the leaders of that war franklin roosevelt uh dwight eisenhower all of these people were born in the 19th century. They were born in the 1880s. Uh, Eisenhower was born in 1890. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer. I was born in 1970. Um, John Kennedy was the first American president of the 20th century who was born in the 20th century. He was born in 1917. Ronald Reagan was born in 1911, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1924, uh, Jimmy Carter in 1924, uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1908. Um, but you uh, are part of a generation of Americans uh, that are born in this century and that are coming to age now in the maturing 21st century, uh, full of all sorts of different challenges. But you know, from from your perspective, uh, the Cold War is a historical event. The wall yeah. fell after you were born. All of these events. And what I want to do is I want to talk uh, about Generation Z. Um, and I don't ask you to be a spokesperson for the generation, uh, but you're typical in a lot of ways of the of the generation in terms of your activism, your beliefs. And I think that as the audience gets to know you and learn more about you over the course of our conversation, uh, they're likely to be, as I was getting to know you, impressed, but also optimistic. So tell us about Gen Z. Gen Z were born between when and when in the United States? So between 1996 and um, I think 2020 is usually when kind of considered Gen Zers. Um, what, what you mentioned the Cold War being a historical fact, but so is for most Gen Zers 9-11. And I think what makes that significant is that for this generation, you, you see this generation basically never knowing kind of a time when this country was united. So um, ever since 9-11, I mean, if you were born during 9-11, you saw this country come together. But since then, there really hasn't been that moment for this generation. I think that's why a lot of kind of this generation feels like this country is so divided. There's so much kind of polarization. There's so much division that exists right now. And so that really informs a lot of the outlook. And just like you said, I don't pretend to be a spokesperson for this generation. But when you look at kind of the voting habits of our generation polling and what we say, 
more than ever before. It's just wanting to see our country get to a better place. Uh, we're more issues driven. We're more values driven. When you look at kind of this generation, we are less politically affiliated with any certain political party. And so at the end of the day, it's about whether or not candidates and parties will act on the key issues that we care about. Um, and so that's kind of like what drives us more politically. But when you look at Generation Z and what makes this generation perhaps different from other generations aside from the fact that we don't really know a time when our world is united, well, it was, it's also the fact that this generation is more diverse than other generations, is more education, is, is uh, more educated than any other generation, and more socioeconomically diverse than any, any other generation. So there's a lot of different groups with this generation. That's why it's so hard, I think, to kind of capture this generation with one kind of narrative or one message. And I think that's why it's so challenging for a lot of elected officials when they do run campaigns. But how do you reach Gen Zers? And I'm sure we can talk about that more. But this generation is huge. By 2024, it's uh, Gen Zers and millennials that will make up the largest voting demographic of any generation. So it's only increasing the political power, which I think raises the urgency to really understand and reach us in uh, 2024. What is the main difference between a Gen Zer and a millennial as you see it from where you're sitting right now, which which I'll, which I'll say as a as a Gen Xer, a little bit older, I would I suspect you have an incomplete view of that, but how do you how do you see the difference? I think most people who I talk to, when when you look at um, kind of the differences between Gen Zers and Millennials, I think there are two things. First, what I just said about kind of knowing a world that you that was united. Millennials saw 9-11. They they recognized that moment was possible for the country to come together, put politics aside, and come together. But I think second, and this is more kind of beyond politics, is um, I, I think millennials were living in a time where kind of there was a little bit more of a safety net and um, I was talking with one of my friends who's a millennial and she kind of described it as there was this kind of abundance mindset where basically if you try to do something or if you apply for something you could pretty much comfortably know that you um, could kind of fall back on if you don't end up not getting what you wanted so if you applied for a job and if you end up not getting a job you basically felt like you had some sort of stability and safety net to fall back on whereas for this generation I think there's this so much uncertainty and unpredictability in this world where if you apply for something and if you don't get it, there kind of is a scarcity of mindset where there isn't enough that goes around. Whereas I think for millennials, it more kind of there is a lot that kind of goes around and it, it, they don't really feel as concerned about the prospects of kind of whatever job they might apply for their future, if that makes sense. What's, I don't I don't actually know the answer to this question. What's the difference yeah. in size between the generations? The millennials are the, the largest generation in American history, exceeding even the baby boomers, you know, which is which is my parents' generation and yeah. the generation of the '60s and JFK and Woodstock and Bill Clinton and and all of that. And so, 1996 marking the beginning. That's the second term of Bill Clinton. It's just if you're 50. Yeah years old like me that's just incredible to think about and you guys are adults now right it's let's have yes yes you know, you're, you're like functioning like in the workplace not like you know it's like my my daughter's a freshman in college she's not over the mm -hmm. hump yet you know but when you're when you're 24 25 you definitely are so i don't know the exact statistics for how many millennials you are but there are about seven almost 70 million um gen zers uh in america so, uh, and most, and like you said, most of them, especially in 2024, will be reaching voting eligible population. So they're going to be adults by 2024. And I think that's what makes kind of this moment so particularly powerful is that starting in 2018, that was sort of the first moment that a huge 
chunk or a huge segment of Generation Z turned 18. And then 2024, that's when the majority of them will turn 18. And you're going to see a lot of, I think, young people start kind of coalescing and 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 being politically active. But um, I don't know how many millennials there are off the top of my head. What's an extraordinary part of your generation's story is going to be its longevity. Um, yeah. Astounding percentages of, of, of your generation born in the 21st century is going to live into the early years of the 22nd century. I'm going to exceed a hundred years old. Um, when you when you think about the century ahead, the the things that you're going to see and experience over your lifetime, do you ever talk about that? Um, the pace of change, artificial intelligence, yeah. fusion technology, energy. How do you? How does somebody who's 21 think about? all of these things i mean to put it in perspective uh, you know i were you know there was a there's a great live performance on broadway a couple of years back that bruce springsteen did and bruce bruce is telling stories about this road trip across the country and he and he talks he goes if for any of the younger people in the audience he goes by the way he goes, there were no cell phones Right. So if yeah, you got yeah. lost right exactly. in Nashville, like they were gone forever. You may never see them again. Right. You know, it yeah. was like over the course of the over the course of the trip. Right. So, I mean, I distinctly remember being in a car, you know, with the first car phone that I ever saw. Right. At 16 or 17, where these were novelties. Do you do you think about, you know, the, the type of Star Trek society that, that you're going to get to experience and live in and. Do you all talk about that? I mean, it's even unfathomable for a lot of me and my peers. I mean, like you said, I mean, just for me, even when you look at social media and technology, I mean, 10 years ago, I had um, this iPod and it was like barely anything that was functioning, like compared to my current phone and just kind of the progress at which technology kind of evolves. is just groundbreaking and breakneck speed. But I think just like you said, I mean, there are really um, a lot of different kind of things to pay attention for that I think animates some of the conversations I have artificial intelligence that is one thing where i mean you're seeing chat now being used across kind of so many different ways and a record number of people starting to use chat for a lot of different purposes and it's hard to imagine what it's going to look like in 10 years because even in a year so much changes and so i think technology is really changing at a large pace and so when you look at what's going to happen in 100 years i don't know the answer i don't know if anyone does um but i think technology is going to definitely have a central kind of role to play in and what the future looks like Speaking of chat GPT, uh, yeah. all of your friends using it is it exploding on on university. I, I, I know a lot. About, and talk to us about that. There, there, there are a lot. And, and one of the things I read is apparently in its first month of um, usage, more than 100 million people signed on and, and at least tested it out, which is like astronomical for any sort of platform for a month. So it's really kind of been kind of launched into the public consciousness. But for a lot of young people, yes, I, I do know a lot of people who use the the website and use it for everything from just searching up a random question, maybe a math question, to even writing essays, which to me as an American Lit and Culture major sort of terrifies me because there's a lot about the writing process, as you know, that comes from coming up with an original idea and then writing it, but ChatGPT kind of eliminates that entire process and gives you at least an idea and, and maybe even an essay to um, write, but it is being used a lot these days, I would say. 
I think that stereotypes are always a little dangerous uh, when yeah. you when you apply them to generations. But let me let me throw two out to you that are the impressions of a lot of people my age about your generation, which is different. Yeah. One is you don't watch movies. Um, you don't watch The Godfather, for example, or a movie like Goodfellas at the three-hour mark. There's just not a lot of interest. You know, my kids, their friends, and this isn't all kids, but that's that's very distinctive is how the generation consumes media, which I, I'm not sure that the powers that be that run all of these institutions have their heads wrapped around yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the second thing is, it doesn't appear uh, to a lot of us that it's a reading generation um, yeah. in the sense of reading books. Fair? Impression? You know, that, that, that definitely is fair. And, and when you look at kind of the consumption of media and information by young people, I think part of the reason why that is, first, attention spans are really, really short. And that's a challenge for companies, for for political campaigns in terms of how you reach this generation. So when you mention movies, I mean, movies are pretty long. And um, I think a lot of, at least my friends, I mean, some of them do watch movies, but I think a lot of them TV shows, reels on Instagram, TikTok. I think that's why those apps are so popular because they come in such short, that digestible kind of bits of information. Um, for reading, I would say, yes, I mean, you're, you're definitely right. And, you know, even for me being on college campuses, I mean, there are not many people who I find who are about reading books or um, or even in the English major. And so I think reading is probably one of those things that's on the decline. And partly, like you said, because of, or uh, like we've been talking about technology and, and social media and kind of what that's done to kind of our ability to kind of consume and digest information. A lot of it's just kind of, for better or for worse, you're, you're reading something by the New York Times and it's just the headline or you're, um, you're reading just kind of the summary of something. I think that does a lot to kind of maybe dissuade someone from reading something longer content or watching something longer content. When you think about this moment, 2024, yeah. it, it appears to me that Donald Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee again. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Well, I think like the rest of the country, at least the part of the country that's hopefully sane and had some sort of critical thinking skills, I'm concerned. I mean, this is someone who, as you very well know, Steve, um, really did so much to denigrate our institutions, to betray the rule of law, to really just be antithetical to the entire notion of what a democracy is supposed to stand for. And so the fact that he is the front runner of the United States, someone now twice impeached, indicted, and as of this week that we're reporting this, um, liable for sexual assault, I, the fact that he's the front runner of this Republican Party is honestly terrifying to me. And the fact that he still has so much support, or at least 20 30% of the, the electorate still supporting him is equally as terrifying because that means that he still has kind of a chokehold on a large segment of the population. Um, but I, I think the one thing that does give me hope is that I think more people are starting to pay attention to this. And I think just like President Biden often says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And the alternative is Donald Trump. And so I think by, at the end of the day, you have more people who I think come 2024 and come time to vote, they look at the choices before them and they think, you know, we can't elect Donald Trump. Joe Biden really is, I think, the only kind of path forward because this country can't survive another four years, I think, if Trump gets elected. Well, we're at a we're at a moment in the country in my lifetime where we have never had as 
top heavy in terms of elderly political leadership in the yeah. in the country. Um, talk about that with your friends. These are, I mean, I get that when you're 22, my kids look at me at 52 and, you know, they're like, you're old, but yeah. we're talking about, talking about really old people here, right? You know, Joe Biden was born during the Battle of Midway. Um, you've been a Biden supporter and activist. There's a lot of worry in the country. Um, young people, you talk about the activism, the ideas, and the and the ideals. How do you how do you think about these these issues? I mean, um, one of the things that you're a little young to remember, you know, when you talk about 9/11, is the enthusiasm and excitement around Barack Obama's first campaign yes, yes. that excited a lot of youth voters. But I can't, when you look at the age of these people, including, including Joe Biden, right. There's, it's not, it's not possible for me to believe, right. That, that they're inspiring and exciting, you know, kids in their twenties. Talk, talk to me about that. Am I wrong on that? No, you're not. And and that's one of the things that I think dissuades a lot of people from politics because the lack of representation of young people, politics has always been something that is a problematic but especially now i mean you have just like you said you have joe biden who's 80 years old you have donald trump who's 70 and what six years old you have um basically leadership chuck schumer more than 70 years old you have diane Feinstein now effort in her 90s i mean there is a large generational issue in politics and i think that's what makes a lot of it kind of distasteful or at least kind of pushes us away from even getting involved but Here's what I think is interesting about this moment. First is you're starting to see more young people at least run for office and actually hold positions of power. So you have Maxwell Frost on the lateral level, who is the first gen here, whoever um, holds up, hold such, such a position. You have more diverse, younger people on the state and local levels who are representing them. And I think what's more interesting is President Biden, President Biden, his administration, I think, has recognized that maybe he's not the best messenger for this, which is why I think their digital strategy is really interesting, which is that they're recruiting a lot of Gen Zers and young people who will be the effective messengers to other young people. So um, right before the 2022 election, they recruited a bunch of tech activists and Instagram celebrities and influencers to come to the White House. They gave them um, the top lines for what this administration has done. And then they were the people who kind of amplified that message on their respective social media platforms. And I think that was a hugely important because when we look at the data and we look at kind of what works most effectively for getting young people out there and voting, it's peer-to-peer -peer conversations. People don't want to listen to someone like President Biden or an 80-year-old or a 70-year-old telling us, you know, what we should vote for, what issues are important for us. Those peer-to-peer -peer conversations, those individual conversations matter more than anything else. And I think really kind of does more to empower this generation to at least pay attention and ultimately vote and turn out uh, to the ballot box. But I think when you're looking at just kind of in a vacuum, an 80-year-old or a 70-year-old trying to reach Generation Z, it's really, really hard, which is why I think their strategy of, of recruiting young people to be the ones who amplify that message is, I think, a really smart one. Um, but you don't see every political campaign doing that. But I think the ones that work most effectively um, have started to kind of build that uh, strategy around. What are the issues that your friends you are talking about concerned about that you arguing arguing about you know at the dining hall at the restaurant um in the dorm room well what makes this generation so unique is that i mean you really can't 
encapsulate it into any one or two issues. But there are, I think, a few issues that no matter where you come from, young people can kind of get behind and 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 at least kind of understand what's going on. The first is, I think, especially given what happened over the summer, reproductive rights is a big animating issue. When you saw just the level of turnout in the states that had abortion rights on the ballot, um, the number of young people who turn out in those states was um, record-breaking. Um, I'm thinking of states like Michigan um, and, and California and Nevada. Those states really saw huge voter turnout, and they also all had um, an abortion proposition or amendment on the ballot. Um, the other issue is um, gun violence, and we all have kind of seen and, and um, witnessed just the level of gun violence that's happening in our country. And for this generation, we are the generation of mass uh, shooter drills, of shooting drills, of having to go through lockdowns um, during during high schools. And it's it's just heartbreaking for the generation, very tiring, and I think traumatic for a generation that's had to grow up around um, mass shooter drills and, and gun violence. And I think the last thing is climate change. Um, looking at polling, that's the, that's usually the, those those three are the top three issues, climate change, gun violence, and um, reproductive rights. And those are all things I think a lot of young people can get around because these are things that are happening right in front of our eyes. A conservative activist a couple weeks uh, back got jammed up, Bethany Mandel, being asked a question yeah. around what is wokeism? So yeah. whether it's Ron DeSantis, you have a cottage industry of MAGA Republicans fighting the woke, fighting the wokeism, and a lot of it is aimed at Generation Z kids, yes. uh, this radical university ideology. Talk, talk to us about that radical woke ideology that, according to Ron DeSantis, surrounds you is bubbling up from universities like UCLA and is going to wreck America as it escapes the campuses and infects small town America. I mean, what's being pushed by the right? Um, they're 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 hijacking just meaningless words like wokeism and CRT and DEI. I mean, these are these are words that young people. First of all, I mean, when you look at a word like. CRT. I mean, right. That's a, that's something that's being taught in law schools. Before that term was even being pushed on the public, and I had this conversation with a friend. We didn't even hear of that term in high school because it wasn't taught in high school. It's something that's taught to law students. Um, and 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 the fact that Republicans are trying to make it seem like every young person in the country or teachers are teaching these things is just absurd. But I think what what gives me hope is that people really aren't buying it. And there was a poll that was released just a couple of weeks ago that showed more than 65% of young people view these terms as one positive, but also just meaning basic empathy. I mean, when you look at words like like wokeism and and CRT, it's just being aware of these systems that keep vulnerable populations um in uh lower positions and i think and i think that's why these kind of for this generation it's just basic empathy and what republicans are trying to do i think is a bad strategy but it's also a losing strategy because young people kind of see right through what they're trying to do they know that we aren't being taught these things in schools and we know that these things aren't going to you know affect the rest of the country it's just kind of silly and i think a bad political strategy for republicans to engage in with around these terms is there ever a discussion when you're in class coming up about character, honesty, integrity as being core to the functioning of a society, that in a society where the lie and the truth stand equally, you will have chaos, you will have mayhem in the society. Do you, do you think about that? Uh, do your friends talk about that? 
you you have grown up in a time where the president of the United States told more than 30,000 lies, very conservative yeah. number, right, over, over four years, 30,000 lies. This isn't normal against the whole sweep of, of American history, but this is the era that you know, that you've come to age in. Right. I mean, this is this like you. I mean, this is the this is kind of our current political normal. We have one party and one candidate that is so kind of comfortable with with spewing these lies. But I think you know those words don't really come up in the conversations I have. I think the one word that comes up more than ever is authenticity, and I think that that might encapsulate honesty and and integrity and decency. But at the end of the day, I think because this generation is so online, the thing that matters most in terms of candidates being able to reach young people, young people. Kind of identifying with the political messages, authenticity, and seeing that a person is authentic in their true self goes a really long way. And I mean, people like John Ossoff or Reverend Raphael Warnock or John Fetterman, those are kind of really authentic people who, when we see them on our screen, we don't question their integrity. We don't question their honesty because they present their, themselves and they have nothing to hide. But for, I think, a lot of Republican candidates, there does seem to be a level of inauthenticity, a level of um, just brazen lies and and kind of like they're, they're they're not really presenting themselves in the way that they should and, and at least in the way that will reach young voters and i think a part of that is because at the end of the day the message that they're trying to sell young people is one that won't work and one that is kind of rooted in um lies and conspiracy theories and and you see kind of republicans now trying to amplify that as much as possible on tiktok you have kellyanne conway and scott walker saying that all we have to do right now is go on tiktok and it'll reach gen zers i don't think that's the case do your friends talk about patriotism? It's an interesting question. Not not that I um, talk a lot about with my friends. I know there was a Wall Street Journal um, poll that came out just a few weeks ago or a survey or study. Um, young people more than ever before are less patriotic about our country. But I think if I could reframe that in a little bit of a different way, it's not that we're not patriotic. I think a lot of us still believe in the fundamental kind of idea or vision of this country. It's just that there's so much going on right now that makes us doubt kind of where we're headed. I mean, you have things like I mentioned mass shootings every single, it seems like every single day, multiple a day. I mean, we're we're not even six months into the year and we already have more than 200. And so when we look around and, and kind of see this current political climate that's so polarized, that's so divided, it's hard for us to kind of maintain hope. But I think in the long run, um, a lot of us still have faith that hopefully this idea will work. And I think it starts with participation. That, that's why I think you see a lot of young voters young people turning out to vote, registering to vote. It's why I think you see a lot of people protesting because at the end of the day, even though things are so messed up, there is a hope that if we get involved, if we are, if we can kind of make our voices heard, that something will change, even if that comes in a small way. Do you and most of your friends think things are going to be better in 10 years or worse off in 10 years? Ooh, that's a good question. I think in the short run, it's hard to kind of hope that Things will get better, but I think in the long run, things will get, I think more people think it, it's optimistic that things will get better. And I think that comes with more people being voting eligible. I think that comes with more people running for office, being comfortable with the idea that, you know, you can get involved in democracy, you can get involved in politics and make a difference and hold positions of power. But I think a lot of people, especially looking at our political climate, where we've been fighting for gun reform for so many years, we've been fighting for these issues for so many years, we've had elected officials who just haven't listened to us. We haven't been represented. I think we realize 
that change doesn't happen that quickly. That if you want to have meaningful change, it has to come in the long run and through sustained action. And so I think that's why in the long run, it's probably hopeful, but in the short term, um, we have to just keep fighting because this is unfortunately this kind of political reality that we're all living in. One of, one of the things I'm curious about with someone your age, are you, you familiar with the game, the Kevin Bacon game, Six Degrees of Separation from Kevin Bacon, the actor? Right? I know the Six Degrees of Separation, yes. the, Like the concept? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know people who have survived school shootings? Is that becoming increasingly commonplace that that there's a just around in your class, just as a matter of life experience that, you know, there's a, there's in any given class now, there's someone who has gone through a, an actual live shooting event. Yeah. So I, I will say, I mean, I personally don't know anyone who has been through that, but I, I mean, I, I know people who one have experienced lockdown drills or have been in the college campus or on a college campus where they've had to lock down because there is an active shooter threat. Um, and I think, that reality is so kind of up and kind of immediate for young people because it, it's just kind of this reality where you have elected officials to do anything about this problem. And so this keeps on happening and happening. We're at such a pace where you do kind of see more shootings in schools than you, if you don't know someone in high school, they happen on college campuses too. And so for a lot of my peers who come from my high school, for example, Michigan State had a um, shooter drill, or I guess a mass shooting just a few months ago or a few weeks ago. And I knew a couple of students who had to go uh, and, and kind of do lockdowns and, and had to shelter in place. And that's just a reality I think a lot of young people are starting to kind of live in where we know someone who has experienced that reality. And it's frightening because if, if it could happen to them, it could also happen to us. And I think it puts all of us on edge and, and concern about where this country is heading. Is the gun violence issue on campus in high school for kids your age, a constant top of mind issue that could it be today? How do you gauge the anxiety around the around the issue? So, I mean, there, there isn't something where it's like, you know, every young person is who's polled says that, you know, they're concerned about being gunned down after the next kind of mass shooting drill. But I, I will say, when you look at kind of polling from Gen Zers and just attitudes about where we are politically, the one thing that really stands out is that, I mean, anxiety levels, just kind of stress levels are higher than ever before. And I think it's because there's just so many issues immediate for young people. And I think gun violence is one of those. I mean, there was a Harvard youth poll that came out recently that showed more than half of Gen Zers are anxious about their political future, about their future. And I think part of that is... Kind of top of mind is gun violence where we are concerned you know where can we go that is safe school doesn't seem like it's one of those places concerts um parades those are all places where now unfortunately mass shootings have happened and it's hard for people to just live in a comfortable and kind of normal life when we know that we could be the next victims of of gun violence when you think about 2024 coming ahead how do how do you see it how do you see young people becoming involved? Um, how do you see Democrats dealing with the enthusiasm issues, right, that, that come from older candidates and an older party and an election that is really, really existential? And I, and I wanted to ask you also with regard to Trump, the MAGA movement, as someone who's a visible minority, do, do, you, do you fear him returning to power with his message of of retribution. Yeah, so I'll answer the second part first, and then do and then do the first question. I think 
just as someone who is Asian American who lives kind of in in this reality where you have um, record levels of anti Asian hate, to have someone like Donald Trump return to the White House, I think is is kind of scary for a lot of um, people who look like me because remember during COVID, this was someone who easily and, and comfortably hurled around anti Asian rhetoric and saying that you know the coronavirus was coronavirus was the Kung flu really did a lot to kind of sow that kind of distrust and, and um, vitriol into this community. And so I think just as on a personal level, it is it is frightening to me knowing what will happen once he gets into power, because this is someone who will never learn. He is someone who comfortably does these things, no matter how much accountability faces them. It seems like he just does not change. And so this is someone who has just kind of shown us who he is, and it's not going to get any better if he holds on to power. But I think in terms of how we kind of mobilize young voters, I think there's two things that come to mind first. I think it's meeting young voters where we are. And we've had this conversation kind of earlier on where young voters are more than ever before on social media. And, and when you look at how we consume information, more than 95% of us have at least one social media platform. So when we talk about how to meet young voters where they are, social media is going to be critical. And, and when you look at campaigns who are able to turn out Gen Zero the most Social media is one of the key tools and using more diverse social media platforms. I mean, things like TikTok, streaming platforms like Twitch, those are really innovative and creative ways that a lot of campaigns have started to kind of utilize to reach this generation um, because it's not so much on doors or even phone calls anymore. It's all on social media. So digital organizing is super important. And then the second part is, um, and I alluded to this earlier, having as many people doing individual peer-to-peer -peer conversations as possible. Um, as I'm sure, you know, I mean, campaigns care a lot about metrics. They care a lot about, um, you know, how many doors you knock on, how many conversations you have. But there's this term that's being kind of pushed around in the organizing world now, which I think is really effective, which is relational organizing. So it's not so much about the quantity of the conversations, but more so the quality of the conversations and how much you can kind of get to know the person you're talking to um, on an individual level and engage with them that way. And then that kind of opens the door to then engage in the, with them on the political level, which I think um, is, is an effective organizing stra strategy and tactic that um, we've used a lot of at Voters of Tomorrow that we found to work particularly effective. But I think those two things, really meeting on voters where they are on social media and then also having a fair conversation is really important. And I think one more thing is just not being afraid to engage on some of the more social issues. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, I mean, there's a lot of the times where Politics like the, or I guess campaigns and candidates like to talk about economic and kitchen table issues, which are very important, but not to shy away from issues like reproductive rights, democracy, gun violence. Those issues, I think, really resonate with um, young people. And when you look at the past elections with Wisconsin being the latest one, those issues are are really important. And, and the issue, the candidates and campaigns that are able to center those issues like reproductive rights and democracy, I think, end up seeing a larger youth voter turnout because those are issues that Kind of we are concerned about too last thing i wanted to ask you about a lot of concern and from where i said um not unjustified around TikTok. um when you look at your generation and they hear politicians talking about getting rid of it banning it what's the response it's such a complex and, and complicated um issue because I don't dismiss that there are security concerns. I think there's a lot of privacy concerns regarding TikTok and you know China's role in all of that is concerning. But at the same time, 
it feels like they're just focusing on TikTok and not any other social media platform. You have states, I think Montana was one of them that banned TikTok, or at least doesn't allow any new downloads of TikTok. You have other states that are raising the age um, that users can use TikTok. And so it seems like TikTok is kind of the one platform that a lot of people are centering around. Maybe it's because more young people are on those platforms and, and they don't want to restrict the type of information that young people see. But it kind of makes my head scratch, at least, or makes me scratch my head around why they aren't kind of focusing on other platforms like Facebook or other platforms like Instagram that do do a lot of, they have a lot of kind of security concerns and privacy concerns and why there isn't a broader discussion about what we can do um, to kind of regulate those policies. But um, I think for a lot of young people, and I think a lot of people who I talk to who kind of see the potential of the banning TikTok, it's it's kind of a um, a a concerning reality because TikTok is one of the most popular social media platforms. And um, we just wonder, you know, why are other social media platforms also getting that level of attention? And there should be broader discussions. I don't doubt and I don't question it about privacy concerns, about data regulation. But um, I think just targeting TikTok is a bad strategy, especially for um, any campaign that wants to win over young voters. Victor Shee, we will leave it there. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much for having me.